I'm Very Sherry. Thanks for tuning in to my 30th episode of Pink Noise. I'm recording on board a floating home that I share with my partner in Seattle, Washington. I would like to acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral lands of the Duwamish people, past and present. Today's guest is Serena Myers, and in this conversation, she dishes about why so many people-pleasers don't feel safe to express their anger, and why that is so damaging to their well-being. And how so many women-identified folk have been fed a lie that compliant behavior is equal to showing up in our feminine. And we get angry about that. So let's dive in to this conversation we have about and with our anger. Welcome to Pink Noise, Serena Myers. Thank you for having me, Sherry. I'm really excited. (laughs) Yay. And I was just mentioning to you that I'm taking this shadow work class from a previous guest named Catherine Liggett. And as we jumped on the call today, I noted that the last note in my journal, written in all caps with an exclamation mark, is anger is a part of grief. And anyone that listened to my last episode with Dr. Jessica Tataro knows that we did a deep dive on the importance of collective grieving. And it's a concept that I'm still unpacking for myself and what my role is in that. And what is it that I need to access to grieve? And what I've been learning is it's anger. Mm -hmm. I have to get my hands around where have I denied my voice in anger? And the reason why I'm so excited to have you on the show is this is your area of specialty. Yes. You've even written a book called Sacred Anger. Yeah, I'm really about leaning into it instead of running from it or trying to release it, transmute it, whatever. I'm saying, hey, let's have a conversation with anger. Let's see why it's here and what it's here to teach. And um, so I love that this is a big part of the work that you're doing right now because it says a lot about your courage and your willingness, because we have been conditioned to run for the hills. So the willingness to actually sit with it is, says a lot about you as a person, I think. Mm. There's something I read on your website, like a, a claim about how you show up. And I, I would just like to ask you to expand on it. Sure. And it's that um, you help recovering people pleasers get raw, real, and honest about what they truly feel and what they desire so they can pursue it unapologetically. Mm -hmm. I read that sentence and I went, yes, I too am a recovering people pleaser. Like it happens to the best of us. (laughs) And I agree that the, that one of the hardest things about living this life on purpose, this authentic relationship path that I'm on in order to pursue what you desire, you first have to identify it and know it. And when you're so used to showing up and delivering what you think other people want, you almost get numb to who you are. Mm-hmm. And uh, how do you help people explore that? So a huge part of it is, first of all, creating the space where all things are on the table. Everything is safe to express, um, even the things that aren't nice or that might be like low vibe, because a lot of people really condemn certain emotions, including anger, as being low vibe. Um, And just where everything is, it's a no judgment zone. Everything is open for discussion. We can then start to unpack the wants in terms of what we think we want versus what we've been told we should want. And that's not just from like what we've inherited in our from the generations that came before us, but also the media that is trying to sell us lots of stuff. So we are being inundated with information. And when you can get down into the core of what somebody really wants, then it's about exploring what's the space between what you want and where you are and what's in the way. And a lot of times that is not being able to prioritize one's own needs, not being able to or not feeling able to speak up and actually claim your voice and claim your needs 
a lot of times it's um, a bit of martyrdom where we think that, you know, we have to throw ourselves on the pyre because we're trying to keep everybody else warm. Um, and then it becomes this recalibration of the stories that are underneath those beliefs. And once we can get to the stories, that's where the healing takes place. And then people are truly liberated. They can start to make shifts. I know, like when I launched my program, The Anger Tango, it was so incredible to see the transformations in the women that took part because it was like, you know, women in their 40s who had suppressed their voices within their families, who had never been willing to claim space, willing to speak up, uh, willing to challenge the status quo. And then suddenly they're like, no, this is what I truly want, or this is what I might want. And I just want to make sure that this is on the table now so that when I spring it on you later, because it's happening, you're not surprised. And these are conversations that, you know, people had lived a lifetime to be able to have. And suddenly it was possible because they were able to get to the heart of what they actually wanted. And they were willing to claim it, willing to take up the space that it needed to happen. And I just kind of sat there awestruck because at the start of this program, it was, it was a concept. It was a divine download that came through. And I said, okay, yeah, those pieces fit together. I guess that makes sense. But it wasn't until I actually ran it through with real live women that I was like, this is potent. This is medicine. You know, I thought it was like, oh yeah, okay, this is a framework that we can live our life by. But it was like, this is a framework for transformation where all things become possible. If we're allowed, if we allow ourselves, if we give ourselves permission to say it out loud, to claim it for ourselves and to give it the space it needs. It's, it's been mind blowing. And like, sometimes I'm still like taken aback, like this gets to be my life's work. Like, how did this even happen? It's, um, it is an honor to hold that space. I can, I can see the, the look on your face, mm -hmm. how, how intensely passionate you are about this process and the impact that it has on the individuals you're working with. I found myself holding my breath, listening to you. And so I just wanted to see if we could slow it down. <laughs> yeah, because it is big and I feel it there too. It's, it starts off almost with the weight that they're carrying that stops them from being able to do those things. And then it is, who am I when that weight is gone? And I even feel it with like within my own self, you know, I have, I carry stories of my own worthiness. I carry stories of um, where I hold back because I'm not giving myself permission to show up in certain ways and I have to unpack them and, and navigate them. And they challenge who you believe you are as a person. The first time I ever paid a credit card off, I stood outside the bank and dry heaved in this borderline anxiety. Instead of it being this celebration of, oh my God, it was, who am I without this crippling debt? you know, we really get attached to our ways of being. And so then when we step into this thing that, yes, it's what we want. And yes, it's how we, you know, have always dreamed of showing up in the world. We also don't actually know who we are in that space because we didn't actually truly believe it was possible for us. So it is heavy and it does impact the heart. And it does take a minute to even slow the breath so the nervous system can go, okay, this is the new normal okay, we've wiped the slate clean and now all things are possible. So what do we want to do with this space? But it has that impact of like, oh, oh my, ah, ah. so I feel you. <laughs> and I notice I have more questions about this program you launched. Mm -hmm. You called it the anger tango. And would you be willing to walk me through with a little more detail, this process of the anger tango? Because the way you talked about it, I feel like that's, you called it the medicine. And I I, I want that medicine. Yeah. Yeah, can I have a taste of it? Of course. It's, it's a really beautiful journey. It takes place over eight weeks and it is really gentle. Um, a lot of people think that, you know, anger work is going to be really dark and heavy in the way that some shadow work can be. Um, and I've really been guided to make the approach really light, um, sometimes even playful. It brings in the inner child. It's, it's a really gentle workshop. So the process begins with really setting sacred space, like what that means to you, how you can feel safe to do the work. And there's a big emphasis on that, because if we don't feel safe, we're not going to be able to go very deep. The other thing that's really cool about this program is that it can meet someone where they are. So if someone is um, 
really, really new to this work, they're still going to get a lot out of it. They're going to access new layers that they didn't really know were possible. But if someone's really experienced, then they can take that information and go way, way deep with it and then come back with these revelations about themselves. Um, once we get into the idea of like, what do you need to feel safe, then we can start to look at um, what our belief systems are, where we've held back our voice, where we need to like fine tune our courage so that we can use it to make an impact in the world. Um, it's about opening the heart because we, to live in modern life, um, unless you're, you know, a monk on a mountaintop who meditates all day long, um, we have to shield ourselves. We're inundated with information. We have experiences of heartbreak or challenge. And so we build up these walls around our heart. And in order to get to the core of it and to actually even know what we want, we need to let the walls down, but we need to do it in a way that feels really safe and supported. So that opening happens. And then it gets into, okay, great. So now that you've done this work, you've had these revelations, you know what you want, how do you put it into the world? How do you make this your new normal instead of reverting back to all these old patterns? And that's kind of the journey. And it's called the anger tango because my work focuses around anger, but it's applicable to all these areas of life. It's really about learning to dance with the rhythms of how you feel, including uncomfortable emotions like anger. So we use anger as kind of the thing that we focus on because it's the more tangible, it's the more volatile, it's the one that we are actually avoidant of the most, but it brings all of our emotions to the table and it gives permission for all of them to be because they're all sacred, they're all allowed. Why do you think so many individuals stuff their anger or deny their anger? So in my experience, it was that it wasn't really safe to be angry. For a lot of my clients, it's that anger is not something that nice girls do. And I use my air quotes there, right? Um, and certainly anyone coming in from the recovering people pleaser camp, or even if they're active people pleasers, um, they're probably in the nice girl camp where, you know, they've been trained out of it. Um, a lot of our traits as women in particular um, are all about how marriable we're going to be in the future, right? So being nice, being pleasant, being easy to get along with, these are the things that give us value as women or that we've been told give us value as women. And then we somehow believe that that's how we have to be in order to be worthy of love, um, to be deserving of anything good. Um, and also that there's something in this idea of like our compliance being equated with our femininity. And that is a lie that we have been told, like a bald-faced lie. And it certainly benefits, you know, a lot of people who continue the story going. So there is this, um, this self-liberation that has to happen. But then we look at our male counterparts and they are having kind of the opposite toxic messaging coming through where we've decided that something like anger is a masculine trait. So they're given permission to have those feelings, but not the more vulnerable ones. And oftentimes anger is a mask for those other vulnerable feelings, particularly for men who have been given the green light of, yes, you can be pissed off, but no, you can't be vulnerable or scared. And so, you know, it does get a little bit messy. It's a lot of nuance. And because anger is rarely just anger, it's often anger and all these other layers that are happening underneath it of things that are actually scarier and more vulnerable to feel. Um, it's hard to say, but really it's the programming that we have been given in some capacity that says, this is okay, this is not okay. And it's all about, you know, fitting in, being deserving, being lovable and our desire for those traits. I really respect that answer. Thank you. Yeah. I'm sitting with this compliance uh -huh. that, that compliance has a relationship to being feminine and agreeable and marriable and like there's, there's part of me that hears that knows that it's true culturally. And I also think like ick, there's a, there's a rejection and I, I want to rebel against that. It makes you mad, doesn't it? It makes me mad, Serena. <laughs> and it should, honestly. Yeah. Cause it is a whole lot of bullshit. Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet we've just, you know, taken that cup of toxic poison and gulped it down generation after generation after generation. And then we wonder why we're not happy. 
Mm-hmm. We're wondering why we have the house, the white picket fence, the 2.5 kids and the cute little dog. And it goes, eh. <laughs> like it feels like nothing. It feels like we have achieved nothing. And then we start to wonder, well, if this was the recipe for happiness and it doesn't make me happy, then what's wrong with me? And there's actually nothing wrong with you. What's wrong is that you've bought into a system that wasn't serving you in the first place. You have bought into a system and aligned yourself with that system that didn't actually allow room for you to be who you are. And it's hard to be happy when you're denying yourself, whether it's what you want or whether it's what you need. Um, you know, it is, it, it's hard to be happy when you have betrayed yourself and left little bits of you and all these experiences where you've denied showing up in the way that you wanted to. Every time you bit your tongue, every time you were compliant, every time you said no when you meant yes, every time you said yes when you meant no, these are all these little betrayals of self that happen. And then we get to the point where now we're supposed to be happy and we're like, who even am I? Why am I so miserable? So we have to get right back to the beginning. We have to wipe the slate clean of all those stories, all that conditioning that you've had in this lifetime and that has been passed down in the generations that came before you. So it's in your DNA, you know, to be in this sovereign, sacred self, it is like a massive act of rebellion of everything that you've been programmed to believe. It is audacious. It is bold. It is not easy work because it rocks the boat. And it pisses other people off because they're used to having their way. They're not used to hearing no. They're not used to boundaries. And so there has to be also a willingness for it to be a bit lonely or to have uncomfortable conversations. And sometimes we do a cost-benefit analysis where we say, you know what, I'm going to show up as my full self in these spaces. But at this point in time, it's actually too hard or it's not really worth it to show it up in all these other spaces which is heartbreaking because then we have to live this kind of compartmentalized self, but only you can choose like what feels safe for you. Only you can choose where you can show up as yourself. And sometimes that means making some compromises. And, you know, I do it even within my own self. For the most part, I live pretty open-heartedly and very transparently, but there are also conversations that I won't have with certain people because I know they can't meet me where I am and I can't have that conversation with where they are. And I say, that's okay. So I can still show up as myself, but not entirely expressed in those circles. And that's just where I'm at. And I'm okay with that. You know, we have to kind of do that for ourselves of, it literally is a cost benefit analysis, which sounds very like mathematical almost, but it's like, is it worth ruffling these particular feathers for me to feel fully expressed? And sometimes the answer is no. I would like to tell you it's always yes, but sometimes it's not. The practice of authentic relating includes reveal your experience. Okay, and and first it's about creating the awareness of what is your experience? What are you feeling? What, What is true for you in this moment? And then it's about having the courage to reveal it. And I was in a chat yesterday with one of my longtime friends and practitioner of this work. And I was sharing with him my struggle of saying too much, when to know, when to know how much to reveal to who, in what set of circumstances. And there's been a couple times recently where maybe I overshared and a simpler answer would have sufficed. Mm. But there's this desire where I feel compelled to just reveal myself so transparently with the process of the decision as opposed to just the decision. And so I hear you talk about this um, sharing of our anger or our real feelings and there's a need to recognize, is this a safe space or not? And it's, I'm imagine it's trial and error. Like, just like me, I'm practicing, I make mistakes. I, I own up to it and go, oh gosh, hey, sorry over here. Like I see now in the sober light of new day, that was maybe a little much and I'm learning. So thanks for hanging on. I love that. It's very human in the approach and this is really human work. So I think that's important. I agree that it's trial and error. 
Um, I think some people also reveal themselves really quickly about what is and isn't safe with them. In the case of my family, which is where I do tend to hold off the most, um, that was a lifetime of learning and of thinking, well, I should be able to show up in these places. And then I had to realize that like shit had no place in this conversation. It just wasn't the safe space for those for that conversation to happen. And that was okay. Um, with people that I'm not related to, with people that I don't know or whatever, I actually have no problem with being transparent because I'm either for you or I'm not. Like, you know, there are going to people who be people who don't like me. And I have to be okay with that. I have to be unshakably certain in who I am and in the medicine that I carry so that the people that do need to hear it will hear it. Um, I've found that that has been really helpful. The other thing, because I have like the spirituality and the faith that I have, even before this call, for instance, I sat down and talked to my guides and I said, let the messages that need to come through, come through. Let the people who need them, hear them. Let whatever I say today be enough because it is. And I have to do that almost to talk myself out of like almost like a stage fright or an anxiety. I do it before every Facebook live of, you know, let me, let me have the right words to reach the hearts that I need to reach today. Um, and then I trust that that's enough. Do I still get the jitters sometimes? Absolutely. Are people still going to get super miffed? Sometimes. There was a woman on a, on a, a Facebook, not Facebook, a YouTube video of a podcast interview I did. And um, the woman commented, oh, I love this topic, but your guest's voice is really annoying. And I thought it was so funny because like, I'm trained in theater. I'm trained in radio. I've spent a lot of time on this voice, <laughs> a lot of money on this voice. And I laughed and I laughed. And then I commented, I said, hi, I'm the guest. Just curious, like, what didn't you like? And it was genuine curiosity because to me, I was like, I've, I've got an okay voice. I've been a voice actor for, you know, like 25 years or whatever. So surely like there's, I, I want to know, like, I, I don't really care, but I'm curious. And she just deleted her comment instead of answering me. But I had to be so sure in myself for that to not hurt and to actually find it funny. And I always like to think of it as like, you know, if you're six foot four and someone goes, oh my God, you're so short. Like, you know, you're not short. You have to have that same kind of certainty in yourself. If you step outside and the sun is shining and goes, "Ugh, it's raining out. No, it's not raining. We need to have those things about ourselves and who we are just be so obvious to us that when someone presents us with something that's contrary to what we know to be true, that doesn't matter because it's laughable, like literally laughable. And we need to be in that place. And we are not conditioned to be in that place because everyone wants to sell us something. So they need to make us feel less than in order to sell us something. And so to be in this place of like, dang, I got this. Dang, I'm awesome. You know, it's, 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 it's also rebellious. It is, um, it's going against what everything has been telling us for our whole lives. But without that sense and knowing and confidence in ourselves, I always call it unshakable certainty. Without that, we are constantly questioning how much we can share or how, how we can show up and what is going to be accepted or liked or desired. And really what it is, is I'm going to show up as I am. You're going to like it or you're not. And if you're not, it means I'm not for you. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It just means that we're not a fit and that's okay. But you have to be okay with yourself before you can get to that place for sure. Hallelujah. Woo! I mean, amen. I mean, all the praise be. That's that's the that's the magic rant right there. Mm -hmm. uh, for anyone that, that follows my group mine and shine the gold within on Facebook. They know that I've been doing Facebook lives this month for the first time ever following my meditation floats at float Seattle. And it's these deprivation saltwater tanks that I call my space pod mm. because I, I travel, I travel inside and it's the, it's the space where I am at the most peace and the most connected to source. And it's where my downloads come from. I believe that. And last week, I was on a deep dive around the origin of self-loathing. And it came from being reminded of the interview with the Dalai Lama, where the reporter asked about speaking on behalf of North Americans, why we feel self-loathing. And he didn't understand the translation. Like there wasn't a translation in the Tibetan language that made sense for him. And so I was contemplating all of this and, 
And on the Facebook Live, I was sharing this whole idea of unworthiness is necessary in order for consumerism to be what it is. In order for us to be sold things we don't want or need, we have to believe that we're unworthy without them. Mm-hmm. That there's somehow a void or we're less than in order to accumulate and acquire these products that make us feel better about ourselves. And what would happen if that whole thing crumbled because enough of us stood up and said, no, thank you. Do you think that's kind of what happened with COVID though? Tell me more. I've been thinking a lot about this over the last year about the structures that we were living in and how we had these pillars and a lot of it being around the patriarchy and capitalism and, you know, consumerism and all of these things. And a lot of them came to a screeching halt last year. A lot of the systems that we lived in came down. And I know there's a lot of people who are kind of vying for how do we get back to how it was before. But I think in this space, it was a new opportunity for us to say, what do we want to create now instead of going back to the way things were before? Because if we look at like the long hours and the commutes and the the overworking and all of the things that were really robbing us of a quality of life, when you we shifted that, when we had like people, kids being homeschooled and we had people working from home and all these different things where the focus became on the relationships rather than, you know, the hustle and bustle and and the climbing of the corporate ladder and whatnot. And it's not to say that it's perfect, but I feel like we were given a really big opportunity of what's the world that we want to see on the other side of this going to look like? And is it going to look like it did before? Because the world that we were in before didn't serve everybody. It served a very select few white men, (laughs) honestly. And so, you know, this is now saying, okay, well, what else is possible? And I think it's really beautiful that we saw an uprise in things like the Black Lives Matter movement. It's beautiful that we saw the conversations that are happening around trans lives right now. Um, In Canada, it's all about the Indigenous lives. It's like a really big conversation that's happening. And these are things that were kind of like hushed conversations with a select few before all this happened. But then suddenly the global stage became open and people started protesting and speaking up and communicating in this really big, better way. You know, I'm not exactly like pro-COVID or anything, but I'm always like, what can we get out of this? And I think that opportunity to rebuild in a way that is more supportive of more people is the benefit. It's all now, can we do that as a collective? Can we choose that other reality? And can we agree on what that reality should look like so that more people are supported? And who do you think champ is championing that conversation? Like if people wanted to tune in so that we can create more alignment within our culture, whose voices are you aware of? I don't think that it's any one person. I feel like it's a lot of grassroots things that are happening in different communities. You're seeing it in a lot of social justice circles. You'll see it in a lot of different spiritual communities. And it's almost these little like, and and feminist circles as well. So it's these kind of little pocket universes that are all trying to rebuild. And the thing that I think is, you know, unifying is that they do kind of have this mission of how can we be more inclusive? So it's not just their individual agendas, even though what brought them together in their own circle is their individual agenda. They are all working together towards some definition of inclusivity. And so I think that's where we get kind of some unity. The thing is, is what I don't know is because I'm also in my own little bubble of these types of people. um, I don't know where that, like what the numbers are like of these grassroots numbers and the people that are committed to it being the way it was before. But I do know that we are in a, in an era of more consciousness of people who are waking up more of people who actually had their faith shaken last year and are now trying to figure out where they fit into the mix so we can welcome them into these folds and into these spaces. And that's how we grow the numbers so that people find their community, find their people. Um, But again, some of it is a numbers game and I don't know how the numbers stack up because I know I'm in my bubble of most of the people that I am engaged with are in that world. So I'm hopeful, um, but I don't know. I don't know how much is going to change. I'm. I think I asked because I'm picking up what you're putting down, and I. I want to hold this vision. I feel really energized in my body listening to you, and it fills me with a feeling of of hope that our future can be different than our past. Mm-hmm. 
and I believe you. And so I think if I start asking more people who are on this page, who believe in this possibility, who are you listening to? And it, it just occurred to me in this moment to ask you, it wasn't something that I, I thought about in advance because I didn't know we were actually going to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, I'm feeling really energized around how can I champion these voices of people who believe that there's more on the other side and there's ways of creating new cultural systems that support the after COVID life with less consumerism and more quality time with those you love, chosen family or family of origin, whatever it is, that there's ways to build community together. There's ways to live in less isolation. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really feeling my, uh, <laughs> my cheerleader coming out. Yes, I love that. Um, I know for me, one of the things that I do um, and that actually really came to light for me last year was I looked at my social feed. And um, even though like I, f- I found like my friends group was pretty diverse when I looked at the accounts that I actually followed at the, I would say like maybe the start of the pandemic, it was very white. It was like proportionately, it was very white. And so I started looking for um, different voices to follow of people who don't look or believe like I do, not people who are like off the rails and, you know, like doing harm with their beliefs, but people who just think and feel differently because their experience is different than mine. I also look at someone like um, Brene Brown is really awesome because she shares her platform with so many different voices. Glennon Doyle has been doing this as well. So even though they're white women, they're white women who have networks that are way bigger than mine. And so on their podcasts and on their social feeds, they, they do these shares, they highlight these stories of people that I would never have been exposed to otherwise. And then those people could expose me to other people. And I started to diversify who I follow. And it was amazing of how much shifted and how much I started to be able to understand from someone else's perspective. Because I feel like so much of the division that we experience is a lack of exposure. And as soon as we can know somebody who is different than us, that otherness is no longer scary or intimidating. It's just like, oh yeah, okay, well, that's different than my way of being. You know, before the pandemic, I had met one trans person in my entire life. And then during the pandemic, Uh, my then husband realized that he was a trans woman. And so now I'm married to a trans person. I'm living with one every day. And talk about changing your worldview because the person that I knew before, um, I didn't know her very well. I couldn't sit down and talk politics with her. I couldn't talk about faith and the state of the world and, and all these different things and the way that I can with my wife. And so now I have this whole other worldview that I just didn't have access to before because I didn't know anybody. And so maybe you don't know them personally. Maybe they are just people that you follow on social media. But the more you can open up your worldview, the more exposure you get, the less different people seem and you find out just how much you have in common. And that's when that shared vision can start to happen as well. Because now those little individual islands, those those grassroots operations I was talking about before, they start to almost merge a little bit because they get exposure to each other as well. Wow. That's pretty amazing, Serena. Yeah. It was a crazy year last year. (laughs) Crazy year last year. Mm -hmm. So you married a person who identified as male. Mm -hmm. And now you're married to a person who identifies as female. Yeah. And, uh, And they're the same person inside. Yes and no. So same personality, same, you know, belief system, same ideas and things like that. But when someone... And this is the same kind of work that we're talking about at the beginning of this episode in terms of our liberation and of speaking up and claiming our whole truth. When someone does that, they are different. So I got to witness my, I wouldn't say like wallflower husband, but kind of become uh, a woman who stands up for herself, a woman who uh, advocates for what she believes in, a woman who stands her ground a woman who says no. It's funny that all these traits that we would normally have stated were like, you know, feminine traits were what she was embodying as a man. And now I get to see her just rock this life as this beautiful powerhouse. And she's still claiming it, right? It's only like a year in, she's still figuring it out. But it is so beautiful to see her pursuing the things she wants instead of watching them just like pass her by because she was too afraid to reach out for them. 
And that's what happens when we claim our whole selves, whether it's our gender or, or something else entirely. When we claim our whole selves, these things become possible because we're willing to go for them. We're willing to reach. It's really powerful medicine. I, cut, I use that word a lot, but it is. I have chills. I, I have goosebumps on my arms, up and down my shoulders and my back. Wow. Yeah. You know, and, and the, there's that safety component, right? Like it was, you know, I think she was 47 or 46 when she realized this. So, you know, it was safe for her to have this realization, to come and have the conversation with me, knowing this could potentially disrupt everything and having it change things, but not end things. And so when we are in those circles and we are surrounded by those people that are safe for us, where we can be all of ourselves with them, yeah, it's going to change stuff and the dynamic's going to shift a little bit and it's going to be a bit uncomfortable, but it doesn't mean it ends. It means it changes. And who are we if not evolving creatures? Yeah. Yeah. And for you too. Oh, for me too. Big time. Yeah. Big time, big time. Big time. And embracing who she is mm -hmm. and being a part of this journey with her how the world sees you, how you identify in relationship has shifted. You went from being a person who would identify in a heterosexual type of relationship mm -hmm. to being someone that would be seen living more of a, of a lesbian lifestyle. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But I have also unshakable certainty who in, in who I am that I'm like, yeah, that's just how it is. Yeah. And it's funny because the, the bigger pressure, because a lot, we've always been really open about our marriage and about how, like, how we came together and kind of our romantic origin story, which is quirky and funny and weird. Um, and so we had a lot of people who would project their own relationship stuff. And they're like, oh, hashtag relationship goals. Oh my gosh, I, I wish I had a love like yours. And last year, I even recorded a podcast episode that was about like manifesting the love of your life. And I had no idea this was coming around the corner. And that's okay. And when it first, when the, I had this kind of like separation in, in my experiences because Serena, her best friend was like, yes, this is amazing. I'm so proud of you. And I love what I'm witnessing. And Serena, her wife was going, oh, fuck. <laughs> what does this mean about me? What are people going to say? Everyone has already projected their relationship goals onto us. How I handle this matters. And then about a month into that, head game, which was really debilitating for a while. I was able to say, wait a minute, I didn't actually care about all those things. Those things were more convenient to look at than the real things that were happening, which was, am I comfortable with being identified as a, les as a lesbian? Um, how is this going to impact our relationship, our sex life, our, all these different things, right? And so the idea of preoccupying my thoughts with what everyone else was going to think was convenient and easier than the raw truth of what is this going to mean for my marriage? And once I realized that, I was like, okay, now I know where to work on. Because you can't work on what you're worried other people are going to think because you can't control that. What you can control is what you feel and what you believe. So once I could make that distinction, Serena, the best friend and Serena, the wife came back together to be the same person because then I could experience all of it with her. I could reflect on what it meant for us. And there were some moments that were really hard and really challenging and really uncomfortable in terms of looking at truth, which is what you know my whole work is. But I've always said that in my work, I'll never ask someone to go that somewhere I'm not willing to go myself. And I feel like last year was the universe being like, okay, Serena, you're gonna walk the walk now. <laughs> and I did. And, um, it was not an easy journey, but it was a beautiful journey. It still is. It's, um, you know, she only publicly came out maybe two weeks ago to the whole world, as opposed to just our immediate loved ones. And the reception has been amazing. And this is what I, when I say about like cultivating the people around you that have got your back, who believe in you and support you and love you. This was an example of that in action. It was like this non-event. It was like, oh, it's nice to meet you. Like they were happy to find this new facet of who she was. And that's what we want. We want to be in a community that when we do something as drastic as that, that we are still welcomed, we're still loved. And it's just a new facet of knowing that you get to experience of somebody. That's rich. Yeah. I love that we started having this conversation about sacred anger. And now I'm hearing 
the most beautiful love story. And I, and I don't even want to label it like a trans love story. No, it's just a regular love story. It's just a regular love story. And so we spoke earlier about why we avoid anger. Mm-hmm. And, and you gave us really good descriptions about being the nice girl and, um, you know, our compliance, especially as, as women folk. And that, um, and that equaled being deserving. And so there's all these reasons why we avoid. And I want to move into what happens when you express anger. So now you're daring, now you're audacious, and now you're bringing the fear alongside of you. And you're willing to rock the boat because God damn it, you're angry about something. Uh And so what do you do with your, with your clients where you've moved them to the point of self-expression? So now I'm here, I'm angry, and I'm expressing it. How do you, how do you transmute that into the impact or the benefit of being on the other side of being a fully expressed human? So the thing that the people I work with are most afraid of is not so much in the expressing of the anger, but in the harm that they're going to do. The fact that they are not able to do it in like this conscious, productive, constructive way. It's explosive because what's happened is it's buried, 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 blows up. So the first thing that happens is actually just in expressing anger in the little moments of these things are frustrating. I don't really like this. It's to the point where it doesn't even escalate to anger because a mild nuisance is handled at the moment. So it doesn't get to build up. It doesn't get to pressurize and then explode, which means that when they are angry, like just genuinely angry because something has happened and it's not cumulative of all the things that happened before it's in that moment, they're able to be constructive. They're able to articulate what they mean instead of being in this reactive place that's really not just explosive, but uncontrolled. So that they're not, I don't want to say they're not doing harm because sometimes harm still comes, but that they're also able to recognize, you know, what they've said and what, what has happened and they can then make amends. So one of the things that I say to my wife when, when I get mad is like, I'm not sorry for my feelings, but I'm really sorry that I did, I express them in a way that hurt you. Because I think it's really important that we don't invalidate the feelings that brought the expression forward in the first place. When we are in a place where we can be with an emotion, whether it's anger or anything else, and we're not censoring it, we're not worrying about how it's being perceived. And we've done the work beforehand of handling things so that the thing we're dealing with is actually the thing we're dealing with and not like all of our trauma and our history. Articulating it becomes not easy, but easier. We're able to do it justice. We're also able to be with that anger and say like, what is this trying to tell me about me? The things that I value, the boundaries that I have that I allow to get crossed, the um, things that are really important to me, Um, the change that I want to see in the world. Because when it's things like that, like if we use social justice as an example, then we can funnel that anger into campaigns. We can funnel that anger into um, educating people on social media. We can funnel it into protests and all these other ways that we can be constructive with our anger. But if we can't first be willing to just sit with it and find out what it even has to say, we can't do any good with it. It's just this thing that stockpiles until it blows up. So we handle it as it comes up. That way, when we are feeling it, we're feeling just that and not all of our other stuff mixed in with it. That's making it more potent and more explosive. We're able to express things a lot clearer. And then we can say, now what? And then redirect that energy into something that's more constructive into the world that we want to live in. You said something really powerful, which is don't invalidate the emotion. Mm -hmm. But you can say sorry for how you bring it. Mm-hmm. Like, so if, if you bring it in a way that, you know, creates a reaction in the person you're expressing to, you know, that there can be a way that you can say sorry for the how, but not for the existence of the it, not mm-hmm. for the existence of the emotion that you, you don't invalidate it, you, um, that it's important. So can you say more about why you don't want to say, I'm sorry, I'm so angry? 
Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm so angry. I'm sorry I did that without actually holding on to the part that is still truth. Because then what you're saying is your hurt is more important than my hurt. Your feelings are more important than my feelings. It's not saying that, you know, we need to be, you know, these all powerful beings that our stuff is more important than everybody else's, but we can't invalidate ourselves to make other people comfortable. So there is room at the table for both. There is room at the table of, I am hurt, angry, upset, whatever the feeling is. And also in expressing that I have hurt you and I can regret one without the other. To not do that, to not bring our own feelings to the table and give them permission to be is to do that same invalidation that we were talking about at the beginning, the stuff that keeps us quiet and compliant. So there needs to be space for both. I, I, you know, until therapy, I was really seeing the world in kind of black and white. And when I would have these um, contradicting emotions, I kept feeling like I had to choose a camp. So in the case of, let's say, conflict, it was like either I'm wrong or I'm right. It can't be that my feelings are right and my actions were wrong. Like I wasn't able to make room for that. And so I kept saying, blah, 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 but blah, blah, blah. And my therapist said, what if you replaced but with and? And so and gives permission for both to exist and doesn't invalidate anything. So that's the world I'm trying to live in now because I feel like it means both people get to be at the table. There's room for everybody and everything that they're feeling, everything is sacred. And yeah, some hurt took place, some disappointments, some frustrations, some whatever. But it doesn't mean that anyone's right or wrong, good or bad. It just means things needed to be expressed. And now that we know that, how can we do it differently so that we can express the feelings without causing the harm at the, at the same time? So what I'm hearing you say is that the how you express your anger, like I heard you say, start small. Mm-hmm. And focus on prioritizing your need to share the anger over how the other person might react to it. And I think the big part though is doing it in the moment. So, you know, if you walk into the kitchen and the dishes are all over the counter, they're not in the dishwasher, that's this little frustration. And you're going to go and you're going to load up the dishwasher and they're going to be like a little muttering under your breath or some grumpy thoughts or whatever. But you're not dealing with it because you're like, eh, it's just the dishes. It's not a big deal. And then you go upstairs and there's laundry all over the floor. And yet again, you know, these things haven't been picked up. And then it's this other little frustration. So all these things start to compound on each other. And then, I don't know, they forgot to pick up the milk on the way home. And it's like, you never do this. You never support me. You never, no, 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 no. And it's because all these little annoyances built up into anger, but they were just little annoyances before that, that could have been handled at the time. But we decided, well, this discomfort I'm feeling in being annoyed is actually not that important. So I'm going to prioritize their comfort of not having this uncomfortable conversation or how they might feel if they feel shamed or whatever, even if we approach it in the most kind, gentle way possible. We're like, we're, you know, we're just going to deal with this little thing. It's not a big deal, but the little, the little, the little, not a big deals add up to each other. So when we handle them in the moment, then when they forget to bring the milk and they come home, it's like, okay, well, now I got to get some milk. Like it's not a big deal, but it's handled in that moment of, okay, well, can you go out and get the milk? Because we really needed that for the morning or whatever it was. It's not this. And then you didn't do the dishes and then you didn't pick up the socks and you know what I mean? All those things that build up. There are so much in those little denials of, of how we feel that they need to go somewhere. Like the, those feelings have to go somewhere. Feelings are just energy. So, you know, if we, can, if we can make it go somewhere productively where we're expressing it in the moment, we're dealing with it in the moment, instead of go somewhere deep inside us that adds up, adds up, adds up until it blows up, well, then we're being really constructive with it and we're honoring ourselves in the process. So not only are we not blowing up, we haven't betrayed ourselves in all those little individual moments that added up to that big betrayal in the first place. And what would it sound like if you're, when you're working with your clients and you're recommending that they practice these micro moments, these, these micro expressions of anger. So using your example of uh, the dishes are out, and maybe you had an expectation that someone else in your household was going to take care of it. What does it sound like to address it in a, in a loving way that honors you? So I think the big part of it is whether it's an expectation or whether it was something that wasn't 
that was that was supposed to happen that didn't happen. So if we have an unspoken expectation um, that I'm I if it was me, it might be something along the, the lines of, I know I didn't say this to you, but I was really hoping you could have done this. I've done it now, but just in the future, like, do you mind putting the dishes in the dishwasher instead of leaving them on the counter? It's like not even a big thing. And I, oh, I always, if I'm the one who didn't express it and it was just this expectation I had that I was disappointed, I own that first because that's really important. If we had talked about it, actually we had this, we actually had this discussion literally yesterday. I stepped into the kitchen. The kitchen was messy. I was going to make lunch and I was already anxious. I was having, I was on the brink of an anxiety attack and I got really flustered because I didn't know. I was like, oh, there's dishes on the counter and I need to make lunch. And when you're anxious, everything is just like the end of the world. And in the moment, because I was anxious, I didn't handle it well. But afterwards, when we could unpack it, I said, you know, I know I was really unconstructive in how I expressed that. And I said, but I was real, I was feeling really frustrated on top of being anxious because you'd said that you were going to pick the dishes up. And the first thing she said was, she's like, you know what? I didn't, I, I know, like I, I didn't do that. And I'm really sorry. And I'm going to get it done while you're at the dentist. And when I came back from the dentist, the dishwasher was running, everything was done. And, you know, but it was because it was you know, we could have that conversation and that's just how our marriage works and how we talk about things. We say, Hey, I'm feeling this, this is why. Um, and then the other person is able to receive it. And not always we get it wrong too, but most of the time, because we're handling things as they're happening, it's a lot easier so that when the big stuff happens, it's not the big stuff plus all the accumulation of all these little things that have added up as well. Great. The big thing I think is in the spillover of when our past hurts start to spill over into the relationships that we hold today with people that aren't even about what has happened to us. And we have a responsibility to ourselves and to the people that we love and connect with every day to make sure that that line is really clear in the sand, that we're doing the work so that our hurt is not showing up in our relationships. This is really big for me as a parent. I you know, had a lot of notions about how things were supposed to be as a parent. And, um, and a lot of like, well, I'm going to do better than my parents did, right? That kind of arrogance almost that I showed up at the table with. But then, you know, my kid was really different than I am, or I was. And having to recognize that, like, I'm not going to use the tools that they use, but I'm probably not going to use the tools that maybe even he needed, because I'm still showing up with my own imperfections, doing my best, and I'm going to get it wrong. And then you apologize and you do your best. Like that's all you really can do at any given time. But the big thing is that because I'm doing the work on myself, I really try to make sure there isn't a lot of bleed through. And sometimes there is like, you know, right now he's 20, he's doing his own thing. He's got his own world. And I feel kind of rejected some of the time, a lot of the time. And I know that that's the little part of me who felt rejected and I have to not bring her to the table when I engage with him. I just have to show up as his loving and supportive mom and have that be enough. And even though my feelings are being hurt, I'm talking them through with my therapist. I'm talking them through with my wife. I'm, I'm writing about them in my journal. I'm processing on my own, but it's not bleeding through in how I engage with him. And that's a little easier because he's also across the country right now. It was different when he was like in our home, but you know, I was still doing the work because I want to make sure that when I'm showing up, I want to show up in the way that feels the most me, the most authentic, the most honest. And that means without my baggage and my trauma, they come, they come along for the ride, but I do try to kind of keep them in check as much as I can. And a huge part of that is it's like doing the work and it's getting the right support as you do the work. It is not something, the big stuff is not something we should be trying to do by ourselves. Thank you for advocating for professional support in trying to unpack old emotional trauma. Yeah. Uh, this last year, I ended up on um, antidepressants and I worked with, uh, I, I'm working with a therapist. I'm currently working with um, a different type of therapy that focuses on our relationship with food and body image. So it's, you know, it was like my therapist was really great for these things, but she was lacking this other area of expertise. So I found the support that could help me in that way too. We really need to find the right people to bring in and to, and I also recognize the privilege that I have to be able to work with all these different people. Not everybody has that, but maybe it's even within your circle of friends. Maybe you have somebody that is the one that you can tell everything to, but you know, in the case of like, let's say food and body image, maybe you have that one friend who is also like super health nut, you know, gym person or whatever, and they can give you advice on these different things. You know, I'm not going to go and ask my mechanic 
for advice on what to do with my dentistry. <laughs> like everybody has their area of expertise. So whether it's paid help or just in your social circle, just making people making sure that you have people to support you and that they're the right people for the job. Thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. Is there anything you want to say before we close that I haven't asked you about in regards to managing and hang handling anger? I think the only thing I would say, and this isn't so much like something you didn't ask about, which is something I really want to reiterate, um, is to give yourself the permission to feel all of it, to not make anything off limits or off out of bounds. Uh, how you express it is a whole other story, but the actual feeling of it needs to be honored first by you and then ideally witnessed by somebody safe. But let yourself feel it. Don't make it mean anything about you. Perfectly nice people get angry all the time. So emotions are fleeting. They don't say anything about you as an individual. And be gentle with yourself through the process. Because if you are not used to feeling and suddenly you do, it's a big thing. And it needs a lot of grace. Thank you for your time and attention. Thank you for creating this space, Sherry. This was beautiful. At the beginning of the episode, I asked Serena what letter to pursue a vocation in understanding and accepting anger. And her story is yet another example of how brave individuals I keep meeting are showing up to share the medicine that they most needed to heal. Stay tuned for a bonus track where she told me her story. It's the first time after 30 episodes that I've ever produced a bonus track. It was actually my partner Kevin who suggested it. After I was telling him, I edited out some of Serena's history to keep all of the present-day good stuff contained within the hour. Let me know if you tune in. Meantime, I'm going to be processing what Serena said. I feel like she hit a mic drop moment about 15 minutes in where she explained that there's nothing wrong with you if you aren't happy with the status quo in our society. That in fact, what's actually wrong is you got brought up in a system that wasn't designed to support you. And when we try to fit into that system, we betray the parts of ourselves that got left behind. Oof, that was like a gut punch. Oh, can you feel it? I can. Because it's hard to be happy when you deny access to your whole self. It should make you angry. You deserve to be angry about that. I know my homework is to explore what am I unshakably certain about? What do I know is so true about me that I could laugh at the suggestion that someone thinks I'm not it? And I'm going to keep asking people, who do they know who is inspiring a new world view post-COVID? One that values unity and community, collective conscious instead of us versus them, or win-lose psychology. I've gone down this rabbit hole before, so indulge me as I say, it's the presence of self-loathing that allows the system of winners and losers to exist in the first place. I did a Facebook Live rant about this last week. If you want to follow those, you can find me on my private group page, Mine and Shine the Gold Within. Look for the link in the show notes. Next week, I have a conversation with Carrie Pizzullo. She wrote the book, Bachelors and Bunnies, The Sexual Politics of Playboy. But lately, she shares her witchcraft on Instagram at Ancient Magic Modern Living. If you are a seeker, ready to dance with the magic of life and uncover the mystery within, you'll want to catch Carrie on episode 31. Until then, keep mining and shining the gold within. <laughs>